Welcome to the Rocks Podcast. The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. The closing remarks today in chapter 5. We will be covering verses 13 through 18. You can place your finger there. Keep it as a marker. I'm going to pray, and I will eventually get to the text. Heavenly Father, now as we turn our hearts toward heaven to consider your holy word, that is, God-breathed, does not have its origin in man, but it's heaven-sent accomplishing that which we could never do in our own hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Please, Father God, by your Spirit, open the eyes of our understanding so that not only we can get what you're saying through your word, but we could embrace it without putting up defenses and bringing biases and uh, prejudice to the text, but just to listen to receive it at face value and put it into practice and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. A news story out of Joplin, Missouri. Uh, May of this year, a tornado killed at least uh, 116 people on Sunday afternoon. It hit St. John's Regional Medical Center on the south side of the city and collapsed the roofs of two city fire stations and half of the city as well. Parts of Joplin High School and Missouri Southern State University now lie in ruins as well as much of the downtown area. Among the amazing rescue stories, a man was pulled alive from the rubble of of the deadly tornado that had barreled straight through the city square. One man who was buried deep beneath the rubble of a collapsed building was able to text his best friend. I'm alive. I'm stuck. 20th and Connecticut Avenue. Send help. Cheers and applause rang out as the young man was pulled from the rubble by emergency workers Without the ability to send a message from beneath the rubble, they say, it seemed very unlikely that he would have been discovered nor to have come through this terrible ordeal alive. Thank you for the visuals there. Now, if we think of this scenario in a spiritual sense, which I often have the tendency to do, here's a man we can all take a lesson from. Dark clouds gather, the storm strikes out of nowhere, his world comes crashing down on him, literally in that case, helpless, dazed, injured, confused, 
But he's not without recourse. He has an ability to communicate. He has a lifeline to his best friend. I'm stuck. Here's where I'm at. Send help. And his best friend, now capitalized B, capitalized F, (laughs) comes through as best friends usually do. Now, the Jewish community, the Jewish Christian congregations to whom James is addressing in these Holy Spirit-inspired letter, uh, were living in first-century Roman Empire, and they were living in Tornado Alley. It's a tough place to be under the godless emperor who had outlawed Christianity. If you were a professed Christian in that day, these folks who made up the congregations to whom James is writing, you could lose your job, lose your property, and lose your life by professing another king outside of the king Caesar. And so, you know, they didn't fit in with the Jewish population because they had received the Messiah. So their Jewish community uh, uh, were shunning them. And they didn't fit into the pagan world either because they were Christians. And so here they had to take menial uh, laboring jobs. And on top of all of their miseries, they were oppressed by these wicked, rich landowners who really mercilessly exploited these uh, Christians by not paying them. And so they were in this terrible situation, and uh, they were crushed, really, beneath the weight of all of these difficulties. They were really helpless, dazed, injured, and confused. Sadly, they had a lifeline to their best friend, the living God, They were able to communicate with him, but sadly, they were not making uh, this lifeline uh, work for them. They were not taking advantage of having an opportunity to get help through prayer with God. Instead, they began to really doubt God's goodness, grow bitter. Uh, They started to cave into temptations, to fight among each other, to cause division in the church to slander one another. These are the guys that James says in chapter 3, your tongues are set on fire, the fire from hell. They were slicing up each other. It was a miserable place to be in their churches because instead of turning to God to get help, they really um, started to just really panic and fall apart. Their Christian lives were really unraveling and, and so here, this is what James' letter is all about. He gives them 55 ways to get back on track. And so if you're reading James and say, wow, this guy's a real hard hitter, a real straight shooter, that's what he's doing. He, the Holy Spirit is saying, guys, listen, you've allowed you have the burden and stresses and difficulties of your life to, to sh- isolate you from the, your source of life and of help. And so in... For context, here in James chapter 5, he started James chapter 5 by um, 
talking about the, that judgment is coming. He's saying the godless bad boys, they're going to get their just desserts. Uh, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, Paul says, and give relief to you who are troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the opening verses of chapter 5 is judgment day is coming. And the next paragraph was now be patient. And as the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, don't throw away your confidence in your troubles. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And now to the closing exhortations of the epistle of James, verses 13, we'll go down to verse 18. I'll leave you one sentence for next week, which I want to talk to you about. I don't really know what was so funny about that, but you can tell me later. But I'm just inching my way along and just don't want to end the study of the book of James because I love him so. All right. It's not hard to see what his concluding thought will be because the word will be in every one of the six verses from 13 to 18. The word is pray. Verse 13, pray. 14, pray. 15, pray. 16, pray. 17, pray. 18, go ahead. You know you wanted to. (laughs) All right, and so, yeah, he's going to say, you're not helpless. You are not helpless. You may feel helpless, but you're not. You have a lifeline to your best friend who lives in high places and acts on your behalf because he loves you. James 5, verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And so we'll stop there, saving that last verse for those of you who will come next week to hear it. Now, uh, Pray at all times, the Bible is going to say. And so James is going to reiterate that theme that is all throughout the, uh, the word of God. But here we have three prompts to pray. And they will serve as our three points to gather our thoughts together. One, pray when you're in trouble. Two, pray when you're happy. And three, pray when you're sick. Now, that last part is one of the most problematic verses in the entire New Testament, perhaps even in the entire Bible. And we're going to look at that verse. 
that last part about praying because it sounds as if God is saying, somebody is sick, here's what you do, and they'll be healed. Uh, Let me assure you that that is quite a possibility, but it is not always the reality because something larger is happening in those verses. And that's why we have Bible teachers, and that's why we have church, so that we can come together and hear the word of God as the Bible says, taught correctly and accurately, rightly divided, so that we can be edified. That word just means to be built up. All right, number one, when to pray. Well, the Bible makes it clear that we're to pray at all times. The short answer, the cliff notes for when to pray is going to be Ephesians 6.18. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. This in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the brothers and sisters. Now, Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. The idea of biblical prayer right off the jump here is that it's not to be relegated to a bedtime monologue where you have this one Cited, say your prayers, Johnny, you know, and so Johnny recites his prayers. That is not biblical prayer. That, that is a part. If when we say our prayers at night, you're not really supposed to be saying prayers. You're supposed to be conversing with the living God. There's a person on the other end who would like to say something maybe in between <laughs> some of your statements. And so the biblical idea of prayer is that we have this lifeline to God. His spirit resides in us, and there's this ongoing prayerful, prayerfully-mindedness about us that we're always kind of thinking and meditating and keeping the line open and learning how to listen. Because if we were to pray without ceasing, uh, our lives, what would we do? We wouldn't be able to carry out our daily activities. The idea is while you're washing dishes and while you're doing your work and shoveling papers around your desk and having conversations and having an inner dialogue with your own self, that you can include God in all of that. Amen? That's the idea of Christian prayer. But verse here, he's saying, oh, by the way, I thought, found this interesting. I plugged in at Bible Gateway. is an online concordance, right? So I, pu- I plugged in pray from Genesis to Revelation. And guess how many times it came up? 365. And I just thought, huh. <laughs> I wonder if there's a connection there. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, take it for, do I really need to tell you what I think that meant? Okay, I'll tell you. Pray every day. Every day you have to pray, right? Amen. Okay, first of all, he says, is anybody in trouble? And they go, yeah. And they say, he says, pray. Well, pray instead of manipulating God. Now, where did I get that from? Well, look at the verse right before, verse 12, which a lot of commentators just hang there. They just just say, well, he just threw in this idea. It has no connection. It's a beautiful uh, transition 
from having to suffer in patience to pray. Now listen to what I'm trying to say. Here's what it says in verse 12. Above all, my brothers, don't, do not swear, do not take oath by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you'll be judged by God. So here's what was going on there. In their suffering and in their troubles, instead of praying, here's what they do. They try to find some wiggle room to, to, to bind God to an oath. If I do this, then you'll do that. And here's how I'm going to escape this trouble. I'm going to swear by heaven or by earth or by the temple or by the gold in the temple or by my mother or by my father or by my own self, my own life, or on my kid's life. As the object was used and became less and less sacred, it provided them more wiggle room not to keep the oath. So it was an elaborate game playing that they did. And Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, addressed the very same issue because they were doing this manipulative thing with God. If, if instead of accepting where they're at and praying directly to God to get help either around it or through it, they were saying, look, here's what I do. I'll serve you like this. I'll give you this much offering, and you take this away. And I swear on my mama's soul. And James says, are you kidding me? He says, above all, quit doing that. I have a paraphrase of that. Above all, my brothers, stop this ridiculous oath-taking, as if you could manipulate God by your promises that you don't uh, even intend on keeping. Instead of trying to manipulate your way out of trouble by bribing God to do things your way with promises you can't keep anyway, speak honestly and directly and rely on God in prayer. Now, that's what's going on here. James is just saying, as he gets into praying, exhortation, quit playing games with God. All you're going to do is bring more disciplinary action. That's what he's saying. He's saying it would be nice if you could just, you know, our, our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we need no oath to support it. A simple yes and no should suffice. That's how we should be. Instead of saying no, okay, this time, to be honest with you, what does that mean? That means, you know, everything before this, you know, really wasn't. But now, to be honest with you, yeah, no. I have somebody who said something very funny. She said, on the way out of church, God has me in the season of obedience. And then I got a text about 45 minutes later, LOL. What I meant by that <laughs> wasn't that it was okay for me to be disobedient before. I knew what she meant. God's really gutted on her heart to obey right now. And so here the, the, the thing is, stop with the, oh, I promise this and promise that. Just speak directly to God when you're in trouble. Jonah, he had a lot of trouble. He disobeyed God. He's at the bottom of the sea. He's swirling around in a whale's stomach with, you know, half-digested mackerel heads and, and seaweed wrapped around his head. And here's how he prays in Jonah chapter 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord. 
And he answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help. I'm stuck. <laughs> I'm in a whale's innards. <laughs> uh, help. <laughs> That's it. And then what does he say? I love this line. Jonah 2. I'll do what you ask me to do. Where are the conditions? Where, what if you get me out of this whale? He doesn't say that. He just says, look, I'm calling for help. I'll do what I promised to do. Period. God goes, thank you. Boom. And out he comes. Not a real, uh, you know, comfortable way to be expelled. But, you know, at least he was expelled. The whale barfed him up, okay? You, would you like to be barfed up? What is this? No reaction to that. All right, moving on. So I love what the inner varsity uh, press commentary on James 5 says about this. Unbelief manifests itself in bargaining, manipulating, and trying to impress. The opposite manifestation flowing from faith will be prayer. All right? Now, at first, this really kind of slapped me uh, upside of the face here. Uh, When he says, our are, are you in trouble? Pray. Um, why would you have to command Christians, so-called, if they're in trouble, to pray? Isn't that a no-brainer? Uh, no, it isn't. Because immature Christians who don't get their way and don't like what God has allowed to happen to them do not pray. Instead, they say, okay, fine, I'm going to isolate now. I have met so many people over the past 30 years that I've been in ministry who will say things to me like, you know, God allowed my dad to die. Or God allowed my business to fold. Or God allowed uh, some disease for my, uh, with my kid. And I haven't talked to him since. My heart goes out to you who suffer trauma I have as well. But because we are traumatized does not mean God does not exist, nor does it mean that he is not a God of love. It means that we live in a train-wrecked world that has sinful uh, free will allowed to people, that we are laboring under the curse of our own doing by disconnecting with God from the beginning when our father and our mother... We're told, you do this, you die, and everybody in you. And they did. And we did. Now we labor in this sin-filled world. And bad things are going to happen. But to God's people, he says, I will use the bad things for your good to those who love me and are called according to my purpose. And yeah, so spiritually immature people know When they're in tough times, they just disconnect. You know what? I've served God. I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. He's allowing this pain. I'm done. I'm not talking to you. We're not on speaking terms. Uh, Well, James is saying here, don't allow discouragement, despair, impatience, or frustration tempt you with disengaging with the only one who can truly help you anyway. Remember to resist the sinful, immature response of cutting yourself off 
from your best friend, the God of the universe. And so keep that in mind. You know, for me, it's so funny because our body language, I feel like God programmed our souls in trauma to know to turn to him in prayer when we're suffering. Our body language, what do we do when you hear something terrible? You fall to your knees. You bow your head. Christian or no, bow the head, close the eyes, fall to the knees, look up. The head always goes up. Christian or not, the head goes up, the hands go up, and we say, oh God, without even thinking. Why? He encoded that into all human beings, and it's only the sinful heart that then says, now wait a second here. Everything else wants to go, let's go to God. And then the sinful nature says, oh, wait one second here. How dare you? (laughs) Right? I'm sorry. I rang somebody's doorbell right there. Okay. Okay, so that's the point there. When, When you're in trouble, pray. And listen to this. Not necessarily for deliverance, though that's okay but for strength to endure it faithfully, whatever you befall. Though he slay me, yet shall I trust him. Naked I came into the world, naked I go out. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We just need to keep that in mind. When you are suffering, pray. Jesus' world collapsed on him, buried, buried under not a hundred pound crossbeam, which is what a crossbeam weighed. But what was on that crossbeam? The sins of the world, every sin from Cain to the last human being, every dastardly deed, every vile, perverted thought, every sick, twisted, murderous. Sin that you can imagine on the sinless one's shoulders. And what does he do? Help, I'm in the garden. I'm stuck. Send help. And he did. An angel came to not take the cross away, but to help him through the cross and because he obeyed and had the grace given to him because of his relationship with God the Father, God the Son, the world has an open door to eternal life. God will bring about something beautiful from the cross you bear. Stop trying to get around it and manipulate everything, make deals and bargain. He just says, shoot up a straight from your heart prayer in honesty And God will show you the way. And then you'll walk around it. He'll lift it above. Or you will go through that thing. And you will come out unharmed because of your faith. The second point, pray when you're happy. Why would I do that? (laughs) No, seriously. I I mean, when things are up and going smoothly and, and everything's going my way, he says, pray. And we say, I don't need anything from him right now. And James goes, 
That is horrible. That is a terrible way to think about God. Oh, God is there in prayer as your genie when you're in trouble. We used to call this the crisis Christianity. That all you, your whole Christian life is based around crisis, crisis, crisis. Crisis, then, oh, I'm praying. And then nothing. And then as soon as I'm better, just like Israel, as soon as things subside and God starts blessing and things are on the mend, as soon as that happens, oh, then we don't need him anymore. And so we start doing our own thing. God says, I'm a friend. Do you guys have friends just to just call you when they need something from you? How does that make you feel? So he says, when things are up, sing, uh, the word is solo, where we get the word song. He says, so when you're happy, when you're enjoying a pain-free week, when things are actually going your way, the computer is working, the car is running, you know, you and your spouse are getting along wonderfully. He says, sing. Talk to God. Tell him about how happy you are that he's blessed you with a wonderful blessing. Uh, I was at the college, the secular college that I worked for 10 years in the East Bay. I was alone, or so I thought, (laughs) in a hallway, and I was just singing. And I'm just singing out loud, and, and I turned the corner, and somebody was there the whole time listening to me. And they said, wow. You must be happy. And I said, why do you say that? And he says, you're singing. And I said, well, you know, my sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. And God is using everything in my life for my good. So, yeah, I'm happy. I'm singing. We sing. We don't just say, oh, God, I just need you right now. The word is for happy is euthumeo in the Greek. And it's just this sense of well-being. I just love this quote. God is my ever-present help in trouble, but he's my ever-present joy in good times. God is my deliverer, but he's also my delight. He's my ticket out of hell, but he's my assurance of heaven. I let him comfort me in my grief, and I allow him to share my joy, to laugh with me. I can share with him my dilemmas and my dreams, how sad the perverted perception that God is only there for when I'm in a jam and need something from him. Here's the paraphrase, the verse, and we'll move on. Are you up? Things going your way? You in a good mood? Sing a worship chorus. Are you enjoying your life? Give him thanks. Let him know how happy you are and how much you appreciate his blessing. Final point. Pray when you're sick. Here is the most challenging text in the New Testament, as I referred to earlier. I had somebody who said to me, I'm I'm not only leaving the church, but I'm leaving Christianity. And the verse she cited that caused her the problem was this verse that I'm going to read to you. Because she said, read it out loud. I have grown up listening to this verse and seeing it unfulfilled 
And if I cannot trust this verse, I cannot trust the rest of the Bible, and I'm throwing the whole thing out the window. I said, there's an answer. Usually, when people are like that, there's really something else going on as well, because it's not usually just one verse that's troubling, but the one verse becomes a scapegoat so that we can all know, oh, it's a spiritual dilemma and not a spiritual dilemma of you not wanting to bow your knee to God or give up some sin or whatever it is you want an excuse to get out so you find a difficult passage and you say, well, what about the dinosaurs? Or what about the pygmies? Those poor pygmies, you know? And I told you about the man who, I'm on a bunny trail right now, hopefully I'll find my place back. I told you about the guy who just picked the wrong time to bring up the pygmies to me. It was on a Sunday after church, and I was in the zone. And so, so I'm, I'm walking around, and he says, yeah. I said, so are you a Christian? And he says, no. And I said, well, what's your biggest problem? He goes, what about the pygmies? And I said, tell me the truth. Do you really care about the eternal souls of the pygmies, or are they a convenient excuse to keep on going without bowing your knee to the Lord as Savior so that you can continue to direct your own sinful life? And he started crying. (laughs) And he said, exactly. I never never thought of it that way before. And just sniveling like a big baby. And uh, we, we went over to the side there, you know, and I had brought him up to the platform before, and he shared a little bit after that. But he gave his heart to the Lord. He's still walking with the Lord. You know, you know what? Yeah, praise God. You know what, friends? There's seconds on the clock. You know, you might want to just speak up and get a little bit bold because we are talking about eternity. You know what I could have said to him is roll my eyes and go, okay, whatever. You know, whatever. I can't get into this whole long, drawn-out pygmy talk, right? (laughs) Listen. Listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. If the Lord gives you something to say... Who cares what they think about you? You are a messenger. You are an ambassador. It's not your agenda. It's not even your right to to disclose or not disclose. It's his message. He can handle what they think. And if they want to give the messenger a bad time, let them. They're going to anyway. So pray when you're sick. The problem. Unfamiliar practice, James is recommending this mystical thing with anointing oil. That's one of our problems. Two, the question about physical healing. Does God really do that kind of thing today? That's one of our problems with the text. And lastly, the concern that the text seems to guarantee a full, complete recovery for any sick person who just follows this magic protocol. All right, well, let's talk about that. Number one, the Lord is our healer. He has about 30 names in the Old Testament in Hebrew where he says, you know who I am? I am Yahweh. And then he puts a name of what, who he is to us. And that's how he calls himself. 
So in other words, he is our healer. He says, you know who I am? I'm Yahweh Rapha. If you want to say Jehovah is the same word transliterated a different way. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, my healer. And he has lots of names like that. Who are you, Lord? I'm the Lord, your shepherd. I'm the Lord, your provider. I'm the Lord, your righteousness. I'm the Lord, your peace. But one of them is, I'm the Lord, your healer. And then Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. I am a healer. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He is a healer, Jesus Christ, today, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our healer. He is able to heal us of any disease. He has shown himself in uh, quite able to take care of any malady that any human being ever has. And he does not change. He is capable today of doing anything you have ever read in this book because he is a living God. And he doesn't change in his characteristics or his character or his power. So God is able to heal. He has done that. I mean, has anybody had the flu in here? Raise your hand. Anybody have a fever ever? How about strep throat, chicken pox, a virus, measles, bronchitis, or cancer? Raise your hand if you've had one of those. Oh, really? Wow. And how did you recover? Oh, my body just miraculously knows how to fight off a virus. Oh, really? The Lord is our healer, and it includes all of those. Those are diseases. Oh, come on. Bronchitis isn't real. It's a disease, and he heals us. Does he always heal us? That seems to be the problem. Of course not. And biblically, you can find examples. Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13. He said, it was because of an illness that I ended up preaching the gospel to you, Galatians. He left his traveling buddy sick in Miletus. Paul did, instead of healing him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Timothy was frequently had stomach illnesses. God has a reason for allowing us to endure sicknesses, but he can heal anything, anybody, at any time. And just because there are crazies out there who have given divine healing a bad name by their sinful, stupid shenanigans, doesn't mean God still isn't in the business of physical healing. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm done with that. Now, although God can heal... You know, sometimes he has other plans. Like I said, why do people get sick? Because we live in a fallen world and our bodies are fallen under sin. The sad but true news is everybody is going to get something that's going to kill you if you make it to the end without something else getting you. No one gets out of this alive anyway. Right? That's just... A preacher's job to tell you. Nobody ever applauds when you say that, but <laughs> it's the truth. In a minority, now I'm building a context for where we're going to try to understand this verse. 
the first century church, sickness and weakness could be spiritually related. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32, Paul says to the Corinthians, who were a lot like these folks, they were getting drunk and eating like pigs at the Lord's Supper, excluding people and getting wasted at communion. And Paul said, I don't know if you've noticed this Corinthians or not, 1 Corinthians 11, but some of you are weak and sick And some of you have died because of this sinning that you're doing. God's attention getter sometimes is to allow somebody to get sick, to call them to repentance. And so we see that as an example. Does it happen all the time? No, they used to think that, oh, well, who's sinned whenever anybody got sick? John chapter 9, they see a blind guy. The disciples say, who really blew it, this guy or his parents? And Jesus said, nobody sinned. This is just God is doing the work here. There's nothing to do with sin. And I think that most sickness is that way. It has nothing to do with your sinning. Though sometimes it does. And I'm going to make a case that what's going on in this is a bunch of crazy compromised Christians who are sinning like crazy. And some of them are sick and weak. The word for is anyone sick is not the traditional word for sick. It's the word for weak. It can be used for sick. It includes sick people, but it means to be weak or feeble. That's the word. When Paul says to the Corinthians, and I know this is a little bit more teaching than I usually do on a Sunday, but hang in there. When Paul says to the Corinthians, some of you are sick and weak, The word that James uses is not the sick. He uses the word Paul uses for weak. So that ought to tell you something larger, but not excluding physical healing, is going on here. Something spiritual. All right? And so this is one sick congregation, as I told you. Also, remember John 5, when Jesus healed the paralytic? He said, stop sinning. So that something worse won't happen to you. Oh, so we get there's a connection. All right? Not always, but sometimes. And I think that the sometimes was in James chapter 5. Now listen, they, they are sick and weak. They are got their, their tongues slicing each other up. They're very slanderous, gossiping, envying. They have shut their hearts, zero compassion to the needy. Um, they, James says, look. You guys are running around with saying, oh, I'm a Christian on Sundays and living like the devil Monday through Friday. He says that that just shouldn't be. These are the sick ones who are under the oppression of all of these, this rubble down on them. They cannot pray because they're out of step with God. And so James is saying, are you weak and sick, a spiritual train wreck of a person? Let me tell you what you should do. And now, with that context, I love this quote. While this verse certainly includes anyone who is sick for any reason, it seems quite apparent from the context of the verses and the tie to forgiveness and confession of sins and the guarantee of wholeness following the prescribed prayer that something more than mere physical healing is being referenced here. Let me read you the verse. 
Is anyone sick? Let that person call for the elders of the church to anoint them with oil in Jesus' name, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The word, King James has it better. It's saved. Sozo in the Greek. It can mean healing, but it often means wholeness or spiritual salvation. And so what he's saying here, well, for example, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, you shall give him the name Jesus, for he will sozo his people from their sins. Same word, as they will be made well. Same word. Uh, In Matthew chapter 8, when they're out on the water, and the hurricane comes, the disciples are terrified. They cry out, Lord, sozo us. Same word as James says, he will make the sick person sozo, whole, complete, saved, which includes physically healing them. But it does not stop there because the wholeness that James is talking about is connected in the next verse And if he's committed any sins, they shall be forgiven him. Therefore, we confess our sins that we may be sozo, whole to one another. There is no way you can read this verse and not tie in spiritual connections of sinning. Because it's the next verse is if he has sinned. Therefore, confess your sins one for another. Now, when the woman with the hemorrhaging problem says to herself, if I just touch the hem of his robe, I will be sozo healed, but it means saved. And Jesus says to her, go your way in peace. Your faith has sozo you. You can say healed or you can say saved. The context is, in that case, he healed her and saved her. She has a total wholeness. Okay, now let's just just rapid fire look at this verse so we can see what's going on. With all this in mind, this should make complete sense to you. That weak, sickness, kind of spiritual wrecked person. He says, number one, you, the sick train wreck, need to call for the elders of the church. The onus, the responsibility is on the person because that would make perfect sense. It's got to be in their heart to get right with God for the healing to happen. And so he says, you take initiative, call the elders. The elders were just overseers, spiritual mature men given oversight over individual churches. First Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 6 or 7. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. You'll find their qualifications. Number two, the old... Testament Jewish idea of anointing oil is to consecrate something. So in the Old Testament, they take a little anointing oil and they put it on something and say, this now belongs completely to God. You can never use this bowl for anything else except the wash basin for the priest in the temple. We have anointed the bowl, the, 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 the utensils for the offerings that were made, they were all anointed. That meant dedicated to God. Even the priests, would they put oil on their heads 
to say this guy belongs to him only, right? And so what are they doing here? The person is coming back to God, sick and weak and a wreck, and coming back and saying, you know what? I've called for the elders of the church. I'm coming here. I'm confessing my sins. I'm dedicating myself back to God in consecration and dedication. And therefore, that person is offering a prayer of faith and confession of sins. Listen to this in Psalm 32. I'm almost done. This much left. When I kept silent, Psalm 32. Listen to this. When I kept silent in my sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength, my physical strength, my life was affected by my lack of confession of my sin. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So, They call for the elders. I'm acknowledging spiritual leadership. Pray with me. Pray for me. I'm coming under. I'm rededicating my life. Anoint me with oil. Now I'm solely God's. And now I confess my sins before the Lord. Do not hide it. Any sin that would hinder a relationship with God. You know, 1 Peter, he says, Husbands, live with your wives in a considerate way. Do not be harsh with them. Quote, lest your prayers be hindered. That's why when you come to God, you need to get right with God and you need a favor and a blessing and you want him to pour out some healing on you, make you whole. You will, your life, your sins, unconfessed and unturned from, will hinder God's work in your life. And James is saying, you got to turn, you come to leaders, You confess your sins. You dedicate yourself to God. And then that prayer offered will sozo you. Whether or not you physically find a healing after that, God's point of view, you are sozoed. You are, (laughs) you are right with God now. And that, my friend, is way more important whether or not you get your tummy fixed or not. It's whether your heart is right with God. And now, my friends, can you see the beautiful connection? The the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Instead of wrenching that out of no context, but it's true. It's true when we wrench it out. The person in right standing with God, their prayer is powerful and effective. It's true. But the beauty you miss by tugging it out. What he's saying there is now that you are right with God. Righteousness, none are righteous, no, not one. Righteousness is code for being put right with God. Now that you are on good terms with God, you're, you don't got your little sin thing going on the side. You confess, you come to the elders, you've consecrated your life, you've rededicated yourself. Now, That kind of praying is going to work for you. Because before, you're under the rich landowner's oppression. You've got problems in your relationships. You've got problems in the church. And you're weak, feeble, weak sauce praying that only goes up to the ceiling is over. Now you're right with God. Now try praying. 
And he says, you're going to see power. You're going to see effectiveness. Now, that is the meaning of this text. And, and, and I, I think if you are sick in the Christian church, you've confessed your sins in your own heart, you are within all rights to go and ask for prayer, whether or not it's a spiritual issue or no. I think it's full-on valid based on this scripture just for general sickness or a general problem to say, I'd like to just consecrate myself, use the anointing oil. It's not mentioned as a necessary requirement anywhere else in the Bible, but it's recommended. So we can, but we don't have to. If you are sick, you ever want to be anointed with oil, I think that you are scripturally sound for whatever reason to go to an elder or a spiritual leader, ask them to anoint you with oil, pray over you in prayer, and believe that God is going to physically heal you. The way that you should pray always about physical healings and miracles is, God, we know you can. We know you love us. This is what we want. This is what we're asking. Nevertheless, thy will be done. And I will serve you no matter what. With an answer to this prayer or without an answer. But guess what, folks? There was an answer. There's always an answer. We always say, oh, God answered my prayers. Well, he did, too, with a no. But you're not counting that. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So that's... The meaning of the text, and remember that uh, that all things are possible with God. Ask Him to heal you. Believe He can, and He has. I had a forty percent chance of living. The doctor looked at me at UCSF and said, "You have failed chemotherapy. You have failed radiation." Your chances of surviving this is 40%. If we can't stop this, you will be dead in 12 months. Eyeball to eyeball, you have 12 months to live. 10 years ago. I'm here. Why? I'm here because God sozoed me. Will he use UCSF and a bone marrow transplant? So? Where do you think they got the knowledge to do that? They get the knowledge because God is benevolent toward man and wants to help us. And sometimes he doesn't need any of that. And sometimes he says, you know what? Use the medicine. Use the doctor. Use the counselor. Use the thing, the wisdom that I've given on this earth. You know, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for clearing things up for us. And Lord, we know you can. (laughs) We've seen you do it. And we want you to. But your will be done, Lord. Because even when you don't do it our way, we look back and go, thank you. (laughs) You had something better in mind. So thank you, God. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.